Hi, this is Randy Landry, and this is June the 16th, and this is my 83rd podcast on Common Sense and Ramblings in America. And today I'm going to read uh, from my third book, um, chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 is the life as a clinical supervisor. Um, so I will start right now. When I left my previous hospital and came to my new one, I had no aspirations for management. However, it became soon apparent that I could not escape that role because during the interview process, I was offered the role of clinical supervisor or charge nurse. After discussing what my salary options were, I realized that I would take a major pay cut if I were to go back to the floor. So economics decided for me. As a clinical supervisor, I was responsible for making the schedule for my night staff, while my counterpart was responsible for the yearly evaluations of the night staff. I'm not sure who made out better on that one. We oversaw the care of the patients and made sure that they had the support they needed to do their job safely. We also ran the codes on the ER doctor or until the ER doctor arrived on the scene. As a result, we were required to be ASILA certified. We also helped out the nursing supervisor in doling out discipline and acting as watchdogs to make sure that our staff followed the rules. As our employees were licensed professionals, this part was fairly simple. I continued this role for a period of 10 months when administration decided to stir the pot up some. They basically fired all the clinical supervisors and replaced them with part-time charge nurses. We all were given the option to stay there, but that meant we would be working in the floors as regular nurses with maybe picking up a day or two as a regular relief charge nurse. Well, half the clinical supervisors out and out quit. The rest of us tried other options at the hospital. Within a few months, administration realized what kind of mistake they had made. Not only did they lose a very large number of experienced nurses, they now had a shortage of people willing to even fill the roles of relief charge nurses. The charge nurses routinely had to cover two and even three medical telemetry floors. Even though it has been years since they reinstated the position of clinical supervisor, they still not fully recovered from that policy change. If an RN had did something comparable on this to this on the floor, they would have been immediately fired. Fair or not, the administration's responsible received no reprimands whatsoever. Like I said before, if something is broken in the hospital, it became the job of the nursing staff to fix it. Or even better, we were blamed for it. And I believe this trend to protect the administration is in part due to the Peter Principle, which states that members of a hierarchy are promoted until they reach a level at which they are no longer competent. Apparently, there is a growing acceptance of failures in the corporate world. It has changed in the way companies approach innovation. While companies are beginning to accept the value of failure in the abstract at the level of corporate policies, processes, and practices, it's an entirely different matter at the personal level. Everyone hates to fail. We assume rationally or not that we suffer embarrassment and a loss of esteem and stature. And nowhere is the fear of failure more intense and debilitating than in the competitive world of business where a mistake can mean losing a bonus, a promotion, or even a job. Is this trend fair? I say not, but I don't run things. I guess another term for this trend is a good old boy club or network. I have worked in the corporate world or field for over 35 years now. I have seen CEOs come and go. However, they never truly disappear. They just get shuffled off to other corporations where they just repeat their mistakes all over again. I will include one real-life example here. Since the information is in the public domain, I will actually use his real name. The CEO of my first corporation that I worked 
as was Ronald J. Floto. The company was Cash and Carry, or K&K. It was owned by the parent company, Lucky Foods. This was the era of Reaganomics and hostile corporate takeovers. K&K was a highly profitable branch of this company, so it was sold off to prevent the whole company from being taken over. We became self-owned with Ronald J. Floto still retaining his position as CEO. Unfortunately, we were highly leveraged and could barely stay solvent. It did not happen that one mistake was made after another. Eventually, Food Lion brought us out and he lost his job. It did not help that one poor decision was made after another. Eventually, Food Lion bought us out and Floto lost his job. We even hired a company to help us with our customer service issues, which cost $3 million for their services and close to three more million for our labor costs. It was just wasted money because the program was crap and useless. Besides, there was no way that we could afford to implement their practices. Our only problem was that we kept cutting our customer service staff back, so our customers had to wait increasingly long periods of register to check out who wants melted ice cream. A little side note, when I went back to Florida on a road trip, Cash and Carry and Food Lion no longer existed in that state. K&K went bankrupt thanks to Super Walmarts and Food Lion just moved out of the state. You just never know what I'm going to include in my books, do you? Super Kmart soon offered him the same position in their Super Kmart, which he ran for three years. Does anyone remember Super Kmart? He was more successful in his new job in Dairy Farm International, where he worked there for 10 years. During his time, he was involved in a startup called FLT International, LLC, where he has been the president for 24 years and is currently still holding that position. I think you should now see the point that I'm trying to make. These top-level administrators have nine lives. I think this is because they find ways to spread the blame to lower-level employees. I believe the term is called scapegoat. The scapegoat theory refers to the tendency to blame someone else for one's own problems, a process that often results in feelings of prejudice toward the person or group that one is blaming. Scapegoating serves as an opportunity to explain failure or misdeeds while maintaining one's positive self-image. While my stint as a clinical supervisor was just a mere 10 months, it afforded me many opportunities. I became familiar and friends with a lot of wonderful people, many of whom I would work with for many years to come. It also gave me the opportunity to become cognizant with the workings of the hospital, which would become all too valuable when I did relief float charge nurse and relief house supervisor work, both of which I will discuss, which I did for over five years, sorry. Uh, this concludes this chapter, so I will go on to my next one. Just one moment. Chapter 9, My Life as an Intermediate Care Nurse. I've always been able to get back on my feet when I get knocked down, so I was not in the least bit discouraged by their decision to redo the lower management in our hospital. It is, after all, that was their prerogative. I found their action to be ill-advised, but remember the Peter Principle doesn't always have to make sense. This shakeup gave me the golden opportunity to test the critical care waters again. I asked for an interview with the ICU director and was granted it. The nursing director liked what she saw and agreed to hire me to the ICU after I completed my eight-week critical care course. However, there was a stipulation I had to agree to work in the IMC for six or so months until they could hire more nurses. I, having no real choice, readily agreed to this condition. To start with, I want to include the definition of the term intermediate nursing care means the provision of nursing care services, health-related services, and social services under the supervision 
of a licensed nurse to patients not requiring 24-hour nursing care. Another more complete definition is as follows. Intermediate nursing care means a basic care consisting of physical, emotional, and social, and other rehabilitative services under periodic medical supervision. <clears throat> this nursing care requires the skill of a licensed nurse for observation recording of reactions and symptoms and for supervision of nursing care. Mostly residents have long-term illnesses or disabilities, which may have reached a relatively stable plateau. Other residents whose conditions are stabilized may need medical and nursing services to maintain stability. Essential supportive consultant services are provided in accordance with these regulations. Taken from the Google search result on IMC. Job summary. Independently assesses, plans, implements, and evaluates the nursing care patient's remission through discharge. In collaboration with the patient and family, provides theory-based professional nursing care and coordinates care delivery with a physician and other members of the healthcare team. Also taken from a Google search on IMC. The class was a combination of clinical, the classwork, and self-paced computer courses. The time flew by quickly. I finally finished my course by passing the final exam. To get me acclimated to the IMC, I was given a couple of weeks of orientation. I ended up working there for eight months. I want you to know there were the longest eight months of my life. I don't know how nurses worked their entire career in that department. I think it is the hardest department in the hospital. The nurse routinely has four to five critical patients to care for. In many hospitals, this also means that they have to care for patients with tracheostomies and RN ventilators. They are, also have either nasal gastric tubes or gastric tubes or peg tubes where they receive enteral feedings. They are also incontinent of stool and urine, so they are total care patients, albeit stable. You thankfully are not primary care, which means that you do get help from CNAs. The workload, however, is backbreaking to say the least. Since the department is intermediate in nature, you can receive upgrades and downgrades plus admits from the ER and direct admits and transfers from other facilities and doctor's offices. You also can discharge your patients to their homes and transfers your patients to other facilities as well as having them possibly code on you. It is a rough job and one that I think is thankless. Since you are not ICU, you don't really get the respect that you deserve and the burnout and turnover rate is the highest of all the nursing departments. Right or wrong, they have added many new non-titratable drips to the list of tasks that you have to deal with. Anything that requires every two-hour activities or monitoring is fair game for this department, which means you can do glucose finger six every two hours, pass payments every two hours, and the list just goes on. So not only my agreed upon six months flew by and two more months for a good measure also evaporated, I had had enough. After the said eight months went by, I approached my boss about the agreement that was previously made. Unfortunately, the person that hired me no longer worked there, so I had to do some gentle reminding and just a little bit of arm twisting. While they did eventually say yes, they insisted that I take the ICU class over again. I adamantly refused and said that this had not been part of the original deal. So they acquiesced and I was transferred to the ICU where I worked until just recently. That concludes my chapter 9. I hope you found it illuminating.